Hi there, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. In this episode, we cover the UK's growing economy and what that means, businesses that have done really well over COVID, and then how they're transitioning now we've moved past the pandemic, oil prices and why they are really high right now when we're meant to be transitioning to green energy. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about company culture now that we're back in the office. All of this and more in this episode. Hello there, Chris, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially. How have you been over the last month? I've been very well indeed, Ben, and looking forward to this very much indeed. Fantastic. At the end of the last episode, if our listeners did listen to the previous one, you'll remember that we left it with Chris just about to have a birthday, possibly in Weatherspoons, which links to one of the stories that we covered last time. So, Chris, can you uh, report back? Well, how was your how was your birthday? What did you get up to? Yeah, well, funny enough, I, I didn't in the end spend it in Weatherspoons, uh, but it was um, it was by, by listener standards rather sedate, but mm. I enjoyed it very much indeed. Thank well, you very much. No worries. Well, fantastic stuff there, Chris. And yeah, it's a very exciting time. Um, just as we were recording um, yesterday, the the news came that in England, um, restrictions were going to lift and um, a good opportunity, not just for everyone to get back to complete normal, but also that kind of final final part before business can really motor and get back to, to normal. Um, of course, there's different restrictions across the world, but it looks like England is uh, is looking like we're we're coming out of it, which is really fantastic. Um, and yes, we've got three fantastic stories. Plus, um, it's a bit of upskilling that we're going to do at the end as our sort of fun, slightly different story this week. If you don't follow us already, what are you doing? We've got fantastic stuff across Instagram, across LinkedIn. Go to search for Thinking Commercially and find those. You get lots of stuff around the podcast. We only do this once a month. It is about an hour to maybe slightly less, um, but you get lots of extra stuff on our Instagram and on the LinkedIn channel. So please do check them out. Other than that, Chris, are you ready to get going? I am. So the first story for this month's episode is all about growth in the economy. As you know, if you're a regular listener of Thinking Commercially, we like to put a positive spin on stories, but also talk about some of the key things that you need to know about. There's been a lot going on in the media over the last couple of weeks, a lot around the geopolitical tensions in in Ukraine, a lot around um, COVID, uh, a lot about Christmas parties at 10 Downing Street and everything like that. Uh, But one story that hopefully you did get, but you might have missed, was that the economy in the UK grew by 7.5% in uh, 2021 and actually is looking more like the level it was pre-pandemic. So really good to see that the economy is growing. There was a bit of data in December suggesting that the Omicron variant had impacted growth, but now we're moving out of it again, expecting to see growth in the economy. But we talk about this and we hear this and we hear GDP and all these phrases. Um, But Chris, what I want to help our listeners understand is why is growth so important for national economies and why do the 
business sections of all newspapers always talk about growth, GDP, whether a country's growing, how quickly it's growing um, as an indicator of the economic well-being of that country? It's a really good question, Ben, and it's one that I, I still actually um, find difficult to get my head around. It, it's a bit like in, in business terms, um, if a business isn't growing and expanding, it's kind of going backwards. Whereas in our normal lives, you know, what we really aspire to is a kind of steady state. But as with business, so with national economies, if, if they're not growing, they're actually shrinking. And the only way I can explain this, and economists will know this naturally, so forgive me for sounding a bit, a bit stupid about it, but global growth is not a zero-sum game. It's not a game where one person gets richer uh, at the expense of another who gets poorer. And it took me quite a long time to actually understand this. And, and when you kind of realize that, the, the world actually as a whole can and should be getting richer. And although it may not feel like it when you're in a you know, particular time, if you look back over global history, uh, that's actually what, what has been happening. So there is a presumption amongst economists that national economies need, need to be growing. If you're not growing, if you're flatlining, then in actual fact, you're shrinking. And one of the challenges that the developed world faces is one of secular stagnation. Since the middle of the, the last century, since the, the 1950s, uh, the developed economy led by the states has grown enormously and enormously quickly. And that's not happening anymore. I mean, of the, the large global economies, China is undoubtedly uh, leading the way with growth of, of 6 7% annually and, and as likely as not more. But in, in developed economies, we do face uh, secular stagnation where we are beginning to flatline. And if that continues, then we could actually start shrinking. So what is the impact of the economy shrinking? Could you put it into a, a way that really makes it real for the people that are listening to this? Probably, in effect, it's like a, a recession. It's where everything starts uh, becoming bleaker, where there are fewer job opportunities, where people are paid less, where there are, you know, it's worse shortages on the shelves, there's less innovation, and people start to retrench. So although um, if, if, if an economy goes through a recession, which I think is technically uh, two quarterly periods of negative growth, economies can shrug that off pretty easily. But if you're in long-term decline, then it starts to feed through to your everyday life, uh, and you do start to feel it. Thanks, Chris. One thing I did want to pick up from from your first answer was you said it was not a phenomenon that if someone gets richer, someone also gets poorer. I think it's very keen to point out that that is very different to what you'll hear a lot in the media around the need to level up, i.e. the rich are getting richer and the, the poor are getting poorer. Um, ultimately, those, those are kind of comparative measures. So the rich in comparison to the poorest in society are are getting um, are getting richer, and I think actually the, the share of income in the last decade, uh, the share of uh, income has increased amongst the rich one percent. So 
when the government talks about the need to level up, there definitely is that because the growth in the economy is being um, isn't being shared equally, as in the rich are getting disproportionately wealthier. Chris, coming back to a bit more of a business sense, why is it important, this levelling up sort of mission and making sure that mm-hmm. when an economy does grow, that this is shared equally across all areas of society? You're absolutely right in saying that there's been over the last 10 years and probably longer, uh, increasing polarisation. So the, 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 the poor are poorer and the rich are richer. I mean, one, one explanation for this over the last 10 years is simply that after the financial crisis of 2008, because of the monetary measures that um, authorities took, asset prices went up in value and rich people tend to own assets. So they became richer as a result. But the reason why why, um, leveling up is hugely important is because if you get too much polarization, then um, those at the bottom can feel quite hopeless about it. And in a sense, capitalism is about having the individual incentive to better yourself and better your family. And if you are right at the bottom of the rung and you think there's no way I can do that, it becomes pretty hopeless. And that leads to social dislocation. Now, social dislocation is bad for all of us. Uh, It's not just bad for the poorest, it's bad for everybody because it means that societal institutions, which in my view are fragile at best, come under enormous pressure. And of course, looking at it from the other point of view, this idea of of, uh, everybody becoming wealthier, people generally being better off means that all businesses have more customers who are able to spend more. So that's got to be good for business. Thanks so much, Chris, for expanding on that for us. I want to move slightly away from it to how everything is measured within an economy. And we mentioned gross domestic uh, product uh, earlier, GDP, uh, for short. Um, Could you give us a little bit more insight into what that measures and why it's used across the globe to measure economies and also maybe just check in about other measures that uh, typically are are used uh, for economic prosperity across the globe. Uh, Absolutely. So GDP, uh, which, as you say, means gross domestic product, the the gross, actually, it's quite interesting, this. It's called gross because it measures economic activity, but without taking into account the fact that the, the capital assets that are used for production are basically worn away in producing that production. So in accounting terms, plant and machinery is depreciated to reflect the fact that uh, over time it's going to need replacement. But GDP is called gross domestic product because it doesn't allow for that depreciation effect. But within GDP, there are at least three different measures. So there's a measure of output or production, there's a measure of income, and there's a measure of expenditure. And essentially, it's a shorthand for measuring, I suppose, in terms of what matters to to us, uh, growth in jobs. That's, That's what it translates into. And then just going back to the stats that you started off with, this seven 0.5% growth in UK GDP last year. Um, The government is is, uh, trumpeting that because 
it's better than uh, most other developed economies. But uh, by contrast, in the year before, in 2020, the UK economy shrank by uh, over 9%. And that shrinkage was greater than that of other, any other developed economy. Um, and what the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is one of these independent bodies, uh, part of government, but independent, what they reckon is that our annual output uh, is growing at around one and a half percent a year. And that's quite weak by historical standards, which goes back to this thing I was saying about secular stagnation, and especially if you compare it to, say, to say uh, China. So what I would say is that, you know, it's fine for the government to say, uh, to go bang on about the 7.5% figure. We are, we, we are growing post-pandemic, but on the other hand, given the, the, the over 9% uh, shrinkage the year before, there's a lot uh, a lot of slump to, to catch up on. Um, in terms of other measures, there are other measures, for example, level of unemployment, average wages. And I, I, doubt, I doubt if many people re will remember this, but I think it was under the Cameron government that they started looking into uh, measures of happiness. Um, because in a sense, you know, economic well-being is one thing, but that doesn't necessarily translate into uh, a happier population, which is really what it should be about. I think that ties back if we've got any um, philosophy students, maybe politics students, uh, like Jeremy Bentham's kind of um, um, sort of philosophy on, on that. I'm definitely um, digging well into my history degree and politics A-level on, on, on this, but it is quite an interesting concept, um, measuring sort of happiness in, in, in society. And ultimately, if we could measure happiness, that would be an excellent measure, but um, very, very difficult to do so. Another thing that I wanted just to, to mention was you talked about in 2020 how uh, the UK was maybe more hit than other economies. Part of the reason for that is that the UK is uh, is quite a big service economy, especially hospitality. You look at London and other cities, so much of uh, people's disposable income pre-pandemic was uh, was spent, you know, out and about, you know, got some of the best restaurants in the world, some of the best theatres, some of the best cinemas. Um, so it was maybe understandable in some some terms that we were, did experience something uh, worse than other countries, given uh, given we weren't allowed out to experience all of this fantastic hospitality that we had. But as you can see, and especially now that restrictions have been uh, lifted even further, hopefully we can rebound, especially in the hospitality uh, sector. We can move towards uh, getting back to um, pubs, theatres, restaurants and uh, enjoying ourselves um, and getting that happiness index uh, uh, going up again as, as well. Uh, my final question on this uh, this point is around confidence. I know, Chris, uh, you really wanted to touch on how confidence impacts the economy, um, especially focusing on the purchasing managers index as well. Um, so could you just give us a little indication about that and also why it's important for our listeners to know about it? Confidence is kind of a weird word in this context, um, but business people do do talk about um, confidence. And what they mean is, are they confident enough to invest in people, premises and products now for a return in, in the future? So confidence is about feeling sufficiently confident to commit the resources for a, a future return. And of course, that's important because if they're not confident 
about business prospects generally, then they won't invest and business generally will become uncompetitive. And in terms of, you're absolutely right, in terms of, of how confidence is measured, it's measured by um, something called the Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI. And the thing about the PMI is that you, you might think that confidence is fairly um, uh, ethereal. How on earth do you measure that? But, but the, P, the PMI measure is pretty well established in business terms. What it is, it's a monthly survey of approximately 400 companies, and it covers uh, things like new orders, inventory levels, production, supplies delivered, employment, plus a few qualitative questions about business conditions. And taken all together, all together these indicators point to whether uh, purchasing managers, and they're the people who source raw material in businesses, whether they feel the economy is expanding, so therefore they're buying in more, uh, they're getting more orders from customers, the businesses, whether it's expanding, staying the same, or, or contracting. Um, and that's a, a really good measure of the extent to which people who are absolutely embedded in business see the future unfolding. Really great stuff, really interesting. And I definitely recommend having a look at PMI and some of these other measures uh, for the economy. I think it gives you a really well-grounded uh, knowledge of the economy and how it links to the businesses that you will be going into and working with in the future. But for now, we're going to leave that story there. Our second story of this month is all about businesses that have done really well during the pandemic. But we're more specifically focusing on Peloton. You might have seen them in the news a lot quite recently, the business news. Um, their share price has fallen significantly since the peak of last year. Um, but also there was some good news very recently that potentially Amazon, Nike might be looking to uh, acquire them. But we don't want to focus too much on the specific case study of Peloton. We will go into a bit of detail about it. But what we want to talk about is businesses that have done super well in the pandemic, but then also the importance of forward planning and looking at the circumstances that they're in as they come out of the pandemic and managing that to make sure that they've got long-term sustainable growth. Like Peloton wouldn't have known how well it would have done over the, the couple of years uh, when, when they looked back in, let's say, 2019. Um, but also businesses always, always, always need to be listening to their customers transitioning all the time to make sure they stay one step ahead. And something that we're seeing a lot with Meta at the moment, you might have seen on the news that their, their, their users were down for the first time ever, but you can see all the investment they're putting into slightly different technologies and the, the, the Metaverse and everything like that to potentially try and pivot to make sure that they stay relevant into the next 10 to, to 20 years. So we will start with a bit of, uh, Peloton, as 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 I said at the top of this story, um, it had a market value of fifty billion. Um, I think in about the middle of last year, or just at the end of the uh, the lockdowns, which was yeah probably about May June time in twenty twenty one. But now, very recently, um, its value dropped to about eight billion, which is still a significant uh, business, but. Um, from the heights it had last year, it was it was really massive, and there's definitely been uh, some structural change. They've cut some jobs, and they've announced a new CEO as well. Chris, what I wanted to talk to you a bit about was with Peloton and every business 
to some degree and also most specifically coming out of the pandemic does this really just show a need that businesses need to always be adapting and is the problems with peloton caused by them pivoting too late or not adapting to the market that they were in 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 a sense i i feel quite sorry for peloton because um uh, obviously in the lockdown people were doing much more uh, cycling at home and um, so they, they got a valuation because investors piled in. Investors didn't seem to see that there would be an end to the pandemic when people would go back to work and they'd do less cycling at home. And it is true that Peloton did overexpand and also encountered supply chain issues. But I think what's interesting is that at the heart of the business, there is something worthwhile because the reason why investors uh, like it. And, and you mentioned there's a possibility that Amazon, Apple or Nike might might want to buy the company because of its data. But at the heart of it is a subscription model. And uh, surprisingly, the subscription model, and I, I say surprisingly because compared to, say, Netflix, the subscription model for Peloton has seen very little churn. And that's possibly because the sort of people who can afford uh, Peloton uh, uh, um, services and gear are the sort of people who are most cushioned from, you know, the the rise in the cost of living through inflation. And I think at the heart of the business, there is that core. And you're right about businesses having to be agile, as it's called, being aware of how their markets are changing. But sometimes you just can't pivot because Peloton is in the cycling at home business. And it's very difficult to see how it could move away from that. I think with with Meta, I think Meta is an interesting example by comparison because Zuckerberg realized that people are going off Facebook and this was uh, capped by uh, its fourth quarter results uh, being quite poor. And actually, it lost $230 billion in market capitalization, which is the biggest one single-day drop for a company in, in U.S. market history. And all of that came about because it warned that its advertising uh, would be hit, for example, in part because of privacy changes on, on Apple's App Store. So there, I think you've got a slightly different business where I mean, there are different ways of describing what Facebook does in, in quasi-philosophical terms about you know, putting people together and creating, creating uh, uh, social networks and worlds, which you can't really talk about Peloton in, in, in the same terms. But bringing it back to, the, to the, the, the nuts and bolts of business, that warning by uh, what is now Meta about uh, an advertising downturn contrasted very strongly with terrific advertising performances from um, other uh, businesses which are lumped together in big tech, namely Alphabet, owner of of Google and and Amazon. And in both cases, they increased their advertising revenue by by a third. Hmm. Yeah, it's been been some quite interesting results because Amazon, one of the big things around Amazon's results was that the share price surged on the price hike over Prime. So investors were saying, well, they're putting up the price to something which maybe they feel that customers will still pay, but it allows the company to, to make more money. And interesting, you picked up on Meta's uh, stock price uh, drop. It was about 20%, which caused all that money uh, being knocked off their, their value. In the last year, they still made $40 billion of, of profit. So they had a fantastic year. But because of the long-term outlook or the well, maybe mid-term outlook on advertising revenue, 
they drop because always investors are looking for the future, not what's happening at the moment. One thing I want to pick up on going back to Peloton, because you mentioned there saying that actually they probably were overvalued in the height of the pandemic. It feels like a lot of commentators are suggesting or some commentators suggesting that tech stocks like Peloton, like Amazon, Apple, Facebook or Meta are overvalued and it's not sustainable. Could you give a little bit of commentary on what they're talking about and why this could potentially be a problem? Um, absolutely. I think there are there are two, two at least two ways of looking at this. One, one is that um, a lot of businesses have claimed to be tech businesses when they're not really. So the classic example was WeWork, which is basically a, a, a provider of uh, short-term office space, but it made itself out to be a tech-driven business. And, and Peloton, you could say, well, it's a subscriber service. They stream uh, you know, they stream their, their classes, but is that really a tech business? So I think the first thing is to what extent have businesses been using tech as a mantle, which would give them an overinflated valuation. But I think the other way of looking at this is actually to dig into what tech actually means. And um, when you start doing this, you realize that these businesses are very different from each other. So you mentioned Amazon, Ben. I mean, the interesting thing about Amazon uh, and I didn't realize this until I, I, I looked more closely at it, its retail side is actually losing money. And it is surprisingly uh, labor-intensive. When you think of all of these warehouses, uh, the stuff that's packed is, is packed by people. And you could go down the Ocado route, where increasingly AI is replacing the labor intensity of the business. But that isn't the case with Amazon. I mean, Amazon employs one and a half million people and they are mainly packers. But where it makes its money is in cloud computing. And it's got a uh, um, part of its business called Amazon Web Services, which is the global leader in cloud computing. And all tech commentators reckon that that is one of the areas that is going to grow enormously over the next few years. So actually, Amazon is not so much the, 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 the retail e-commerce outlet that we think it is. It's actually a business-to-business -business provider of computing services. And then contrast that with, say, uh, Microsoft, which, which has done really well as a business, even though it was very much in Apple's shadow for a long time. What is Microsoft doing? They're buying Activision Blizzard. I mean, in terms of a differential strategy from what Amazon is doing, it's completely different. And yet both of those are familiar members of what we call big tech. So I think it pays to drill down to see what businesses are doing and to see which components within them are, are actually making the money. And you see, another interesting thing about Amazon, having said that its retail side is losing money, what its retail side gives it is proprietary data. Because when it comes to advertising, Amazon knows what people buy. It doesn't, doesn't just follow the, you know, what, what, what it thinks they may want to buy or what their preferences appear to be by, by tracking uh, the traffic. It actually knows because it provides the fulfillment. And that's really, really useful data to have. So I think we are going to see, as another strand of this, um, a lot of focus on, on data and data collection, which, as you said, is one of the reasons why Peloton itself may well be um, uh, an attractive target for some of these other big tech businesses. 
Yeah, completely agree with that. And I think there's an interesting point. There's a debate going on in in the tech industry, which actually to do with the authorities and the tech industry as well, is that as these big tech companies, usually the big five tech companies, are moving into different spaces to try and find the next big thing, are they actually killing competition? Because they're kind of competing with, with each other, but at the same time buying up lots of businesses having kind of huge sort of umbrellas of different businesses which they're incorporating into their own into their own businesses and killing sort of innovation and smaller um, competitors and I think there's definitely different sides of, uh, of of the of the fence on on this one but broadly speaking the the feeling is is that actually still they're spending a lot on r d and developing themselves but also there is still the room for smaller businesses that aren't these big five to actually actually grow and develop new ideas because the worst thing is when it comes to the competition authorities what they don't want to see twofold one is that um someone has a monopolistic position and can put the prices up and it affects the customer. The second thing is that they have a monopolistic position and they kill innovation because they can buy up all the companies that are doing it slightly differently um, and incorporate them into theirs, which actually might kill some of the, the buds of innovation as well. So there's this big debate, which is definitely worth looking into. And especially if you're going, regardless of what role you're going to, whether it's software development or sales in, in these big tech companies around, around that sort of thing. And it's definitely something interesting that I would uh, definitely look into a little bit more. Final question, Chris, on this is, Tech companies are really growing at pace at the moment. Obviously, we talked about Facebook and Meta having a few problems, but can they really sustain this level of growth? Well, it's very interesting. As you were talking about um, whether big tech can um, stop innovation, what I think is absolutely fascinating is the number of small startup tech companies, fintech companies, it's incredible the degree of innovation there is. So so I, I think... Tech generally, not just big tech, but tech generally is going to continue to drive changes in in the way that we live. And um, one way of looking at this is that it's reached a point now where 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 tech plays a mission critical role. You know, even old economy businesses need to spend more on tech to provide better customer service and a better customer experience. Otherwise, they will go out of business. I've been around for long enough to know that tech has been one of the the real secular drivers of change for the last 30 years. But I really don't see that changing anytime soon. Great stuff. Let's leave it there. The third story that we're going to cover this week is all about oil, oil prices and green energy energy. You might have heard us cover oil in previous series. And as you'll know, if you've listened to the last couple of episodes in this series, green energy is a hot topic of conversation at the moment, as it rightly should be, as we, as a planet, look to transition the energy that we're using and look towards a greener future. But I want to take a slightly different take on it to focus more on oil this time. The reason being is because the cost of oil is gone through the roof lately. So we are almost at $100 per barrel for Brent crude and natural gas prices are continuing to surge. So Chris, what I wanted to ask is why is oil going up so much in price and demand so high when we're all trying to move away from it? 
I know it's it's crazy, isn't it? And I can understand people's frustration. You know, we we know that we we face terrible issues over climate change, and and we really need to to get rid of fossil fuels as soon as possible. So, what on earth is going on? And I think the real problem is that the different sources of green energy haven't yet got the capacity to replace fossil fuels in full. And in fact, what's happening is that oil companies under pressure from their investors are slackening off exploration and production, which means that this gap between fossil fuels on the one hand being phased out and green energy being able to take up the slack, this gap is actually increasing at the moment rather than decreasing. And there, there are lots of, of immediate reasons why the price of oil is going up, geopolitical tensions, supply chain challenges, bounce back from COVID and so on. But I think this, this one, that, that there is this gap and the pressure on oil companies to move away from oil exploration production is actually for the time being going to increase the gap, which feels kind of counterintuitive and really quite frustrating. Yeah, definitely. I think as we discussed in two or three episodes ago, it definitely, there's a lot of exploration and a lot more money invested into green energy, but the fruits of that investment and the resource gone into really haven't taken off as they need to to be able to uh, supply it across across the world and really allow us to um, start phasing out oil obviously every uh, pretty much every country has agreed to uh, slightly different um, timelines for phasing out um, natural gases oil and things like that one thing I wanted to talk through moving away slightly from green energy and more into oil was oil is one of the well maybe the few things actually that um they control supply on and actually countries together control um supply and a lot of those countries uh are in an organization called opec that makes decisions across the world at how much um oil is in the market chris can you tell me a little bit about that and is it also their tight control of supply that means that prices are going up because demand is outstripping supply Yes, uh, certainly. Um, OPEC is an organization of about a dozen oil producing countries, and they get together to maintain the price of oil by agreeing quotas for production. But actually, they, they, they don't have uh, a complete stranglehold over the oil market because there are a further 10 or so countries which are oil producers which don't belong to OPEC, although they do from time to time voluntarily uh, participate in, in what OPEC does. Um, one of the things to remember about OPEC, it, it came into being in, in, in the 60s, was it, it came into being in response to the power of the great international oil companies. And a lot of the members of OPEC are relatively small countries that really do depend on income from oil for the well-being of their of, of their populations. So it's easy to think of OPEC as being um, uh, an organization that, that controls the production of oil and therefore the price. But in reality, the world is, is a lot more complicated than that. And talking of countries that are dependent on oil at the moment, there does feel like many of those countries are starting to 
move away and be become less dependent on oil or at least try to which has to be positive news um they understand that things are going to change over the next 30 to 40 years um and therefore they can't be reliant on um mining oil and 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 selling it it feels like a positive sign that these very oil dependent countries are moving moving away and trying to find other sources of income wouldn't you say chris um, absolutely and, and and i think like like any um long-term investor or business person they're looking to the future and they're seeing that it's going to change and so what they had in the past been able to uh, rely on for future income won't, won't won't be there and just in passing one other thought occurs to me uh, this goes back to the pressure that investors have been putting on oil companies to get rid of their oil exploration and production assets. One of the problems with this is that um, what they will do is sell these assets uh, in in the global market. And there is a very real risk that these assets end up in the hands of private businesses that will sweat these assets to a much greater extent without being as environmentally conscious as the big oil companies, which have to be because they're under a lot of uh, uh, investor and governmental pressure. So the short term pressure on oil companies to get rid of these assets could actually not be quite as productive as it appears in the longer term if these assets, in a sense, get into the wrong hands. So one final thing around oil, it seems to be very prominent in the business press. It seems to be commented on quite a lot. Why is that, Chris? I think a couple of reasons. One, one, one is historic. Um, in the days when uh, the world was, um, uh, you know, fueled by oil, and that was still seen as acceptable, it was naturally the way that that um, the media looked at business because oil has such an impact on everything. You know, transport, moving goods, manufacturing goods, and so on. Um, but it's also uh, it's something that is easy to write about because, uh, for example, you mentioned Brent crude. The, the, the two measures of uh, um, oil price are Brent crude uh, from the North Sea and something called WTI, West Texas Intermediate. And these represent certain qualities of petroleum. And these are very easy numbers to find. And they are numbers that are respected and traded on internationally. And in fact, Brent crude covers two thirds of internationally traded oil. So they are easy measures to find and to write about. And consumption of energy is regarded as a bellwether for whether the global economy is is improving or not. So in a sense, the reason why the media focuses on oil and these measures is because it's relatively easy and everybody understands it. And ultimately, as we move away from oil and oil production, oil will be used less in the business press because it won't be as good a measure for output or manufacture or anything like that. that that's exactly right. And in fact, I think what's interesting is what, what sort of measures might come in instead, because as the world moves from a producing global economy to a service-driven global economy, it'll be interesting to see whether there are measures for um, services that will replace oil as a, as a global economic bellwether. Great stuff. We'll leave that story there. Really interesting stuff. And thank you so much, Chris, for giving your insights. (music) 
So I'm sitting here in Bright Network HQ in Liverpool Street in central London. And the reason I am telling you this is because I, like many people over the last month or two, I'm pretty much full time back in the office. Obviously, I do have a bit of flexibility and do the occasional day from home, but I've been really enjoying getting back into the office. And as you are doing your applications or if you're starting in the working world or even just started, it's likelihood you'll be back in the office too. Sure, you'll be if you're at university, not immediately. Um, but when you're going to interviews, assessment centers, doing internships, work experience, or even if you are a graduate that's just started in your in your role, you might have not spent much time in the last three or four months in the office. So what we want to do with this part of the episode is to give a few top tips on why it's so important to get back into the office and what you can do maybe on interviews, internships, even starting in your first job to really stand out and make that impact. Of course, knowing your stuff on interviews, doing all the research, having all the experience, good, well-written application CVs, that's all important. You know that stuff. You can find that all on the Bright Network website. But we want to kind of pull out that kind of maybe more rounded kind of commercial awareness, cultural points to really help you uh, get ahead, whatever stage of your early career that you are in. Chris, are you up for that? Absolutely. Great stuff. So first of all, I thought it would be great to give hear your thoughts, Chris, on why is it so important to have that office time? Might not be five days a week, nine to six, but why is it so important to at least be back in the office to some, some degree? If you can, I think it's a good idea uh, if there are going to be more senior people around, because it's much easier to just ask them the sort of small everyday questions that it's quite difficult to ask in, in an email or, or to arrange a Zoom meeting for. Um, and, and certainly in, in, in my own case, uh, working was also a social experience, working with like-minded colleagues. But I think there's another reason, if you're a student, why it's important to um, uh, take up these opportunities to go to places that you'll be applying to. Because um, one of the questions that I've, I've always been asked is, you know, how, how, how do I know when a place is going to be right for me? They make me a job offer. How do I know whether I should choose them rather than somebody else? And, and my, my answer has always been about gut feel, which, which actually um, some students don't really like because they like this to be a, a very intellectual exercise. You, you weigh up. Uh, an organization strategy, its training, its client base, its, its sector exposure, and then you measure organizations against each other and, and you you come out with the one that, that wins on the scoring and you and you join them. And I've never felt that that worked because um, I mean, as you know, my my background is in the law, so the, the very large law firms I know very well. And although they've got on the face of it similar areas of practice and similar client bases, they all feel very different from each other. Just going into these different places, the way they're laid out, the decor, the way people greet you, they're all different from each other. And the key is to find one where you feel comfortable, where you think, I I can fit in here. These people are like me. And I think one of the things that you, Ben, and I were talking about is, is the definition of culture but you know how do you define an organization's culture and McKinsey the management consultants came up with I think a really good definition uh, they said simply culture is the way we do things around here 
And again, going back to law firms, for example, as I say, they, they do similar sorts of work, similar sorts of crime, but the way they do things around here is very different one from the next. So a good reason for taking up an opportunity to, to get into an organization that you, you're, you're thinking of joining is, is to get a feel for the way they do things around there. Yeah, amazing. And also, it's really important to remember this culture point, because you could look at two companies in any industry, law or, or any other industry, and think, well, those two on paper look quite, quite similar, those two organisations. So if I um, don't get through a certain application point or an interview at one company, it's unlikely the others will want to take me definitely, definitely don't think like that. Because ultimately, they're always looking for different people, there's different sets of culture, you could be amazingly right for one company and then a company that is looks quite similar on paper you're not quite right for and that would be a decision by possibly the uh, recruiters at that company but also yourself as chris said when you even go in and meet receptionists or how the interview's been or the kind of people that, that you meet it's really important to kind of have those reference points when you are making those decisions and actually also thinking well if you're rejected based on an interview let's say in in the office um it might not be anything to do with your technical ability of course you need to keep working on that but also just that you weren't the quite right fit and i know myself at bright network we value culture so so highly um and we actually have a round of interviews which is assessing against our our, our three values um which is a, a key part of the interview process um chris with companies really emphasizing their culture um what advice would you give to students when doing that sort of research but also um trying to really highlight how they can fit into the company culture it's a, a good question that depends a lot about feel so i i think um if I were researching an organization that I was applying to, I'd be thinking in terms of, um, well, what are their values? Uh, to what extent do their values differentiate them from uh, other competitors? And that's important because increasingly, clients and customers of organizations go to organizations whose values they share. So values are really important. And if an organization comes across as being kind of fuzzy in terms of their values and their culture, I think that's something that you can uh, legitimately ask them about at an interview. Because from an organization's point of view, they want their values to be real. They want those to be embedded in the culture because then they know that if they develop a very positive culture, people will stay and they will attract uh, more like-minded people, but also they will attract and retain like-minded clients. That, that's why I think it's got to be one of those things that's on your list of what you need to find out about an mm. organization. And one of the questions to ask is what they think their, their culture is. What do they mm. think about their culture that makes them distinctive? Yeah, and also it's a really good opportunity as you're kind of coming out of the pandemic because cultures have been shaken across the business world. There's more remote working on average across different businesses. Some businesses, of course, um, got their employees all back into the office, but by and large, there's a bit more remote working and cultures have definitely shifted, changed. And I still think a lot of organizations are trying to find their sort of place or find their culture post pandemic so really great questions to ask around how it's changed or what they're looking to do as uh, they get back sort of face to face um, I wouldn't focus too much on the amount of time in the office but just finding out about their culture 
um, moving forward and what the plans are for it, I think are really intelligent questions to to ask and something that you can ask people who are very senior in the organisation, but also the the HR team that you're most likely to be interviewed by um, in 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 the process. Chris, my question is, I'm going to go back nine years now when I started in the world of work. And let's say I'm envisioning, I'm thinking in my head, I want to show that I'm a commercially aware graduate that can really do well, get on in my first job. Obviously, I'm feeling a little bit nervous. Um, How do you show commercial awareness in that first few weeks of a job? Because I'm guessing you're not going to say is regurgitate the FT or the economist to show you how clever you are. That's not really it. But how can you show your commercial awareness in that first job? A really good question. And, and I think that there are two ways you can do it. One is just by being interested in the business and, and who its clients are, what its USP is, what its strategy is. Not, not, by, not by making yourself obnoxious, by coming out with a whole lot of questions uh, along those lines, but just trying to pick it up and, and by asking the odd question here and there in the appropriate context, just to show that you really are interested in the business. And the, and the other, um, and this is not original, this is, this is what, what um, somebody suggested to me when I was starting out, treat your supervisor as your first client, because when you're very junior in an organization, you won't necessarily be exposed to real clients uh, immediately. It will happen in time, but not necessarily immediately. So how do you develop those client-facing skills? And I think if you treat your supervisor as your first client, so how can I make their job easier? How can I impress them? How can I go the extra mile? How how can I do this piece of work, but in a way that minimizes the amount of time they have to spend um, looking at it after I've done it? Treat your supervisor as your first client, and that will start to hone your your client-facing skills. Yeah, really fantastic advice there, Chris. And I think on this story, I'm going to leave you on sort of one final thought is ultimately over the last few years, there's started to be the emergence of fully remote or almost fully remote businesses. Ultimately, we're talking about being in the office. There's definitely benefits to being in the office as we've discussed, but there's some really there's going to be some really interesting case studies of businesses that have succeeded, maybe not succeeded being fully remote. And then obviously businesses that continue to be more in the office succeeding, failing as well. And I think we're probably a little bit too early to, to, to say how, what the best working setup is. Obviously the pandemic has shaken things up massively. Um, But I think it's something really interesting is you start your career probably over the next five to 10 years to see how, opinion views change about the balance between being in the office and uh, being at home because I think it will be a really interesting topic of debate which goes beyond the pandemic and um, something definitely to keep an eye on. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as me and Chris did. Do check out our Instagram, our LinkedIn for lots of great content. And then until next time, thank you very much. Have a great month.